Welcome to Sales is Not a Dirty Word, the show that proves if it's a fit, it's a fact. I'm your host, revolutionary sales coach, Alicia Barr, the creator of the Matchmaker Sales Method. If you're a done-for-you service provider who's ready to convert 80% of your sales meetings without pressure, pitching, or pretending to be someone else, then this is for you. This episode is about successfully selling the intangible, sales secrets learned as an executive producer at MTV with Vinny Potestivo. Vinny Potestivo is a talent development and media strategist who's widely known for launching brands that continue to influence modern pop culture. He's the founder of VPE, VPE Talent, the Verified Podcast Exchange, and the Getting Discovered Mastermind. In 1999, he co-founded MTV's talent development and original programming department and went on to innovate and impact a new genre of television with original series such as The Osbournes, Newlyweds, Punked, Eighth and Ocean, Wild and Out, The Ashley Simpson Show, Laguna Beach, The Hills, and Man and Wife. With over 25 years of experience, he and his teams have become well-trusted connectors who help sell, develop, produce, launch, distribute, and amplify some of the most talked about original series and talent brands in modern pop culture. I also consider him a close friend, and he's a wonderful, high-quality human. Welcome to the big show. Sales is not a dirty word. Hey, yo. How you doing, love? Ah, so excited that you're here. You have such a fascinating story that everybody can learn so much from. And we're not even going to be able to talk about all the parts of it. So you guys <laughs> really go check him out because he's got such an endless list of good stories we can all learn from. Oh, I um, appreciate that. Not all of them mine either, too, by the way. So <laughs> yes, but still you were a part of them. And yeah. I mean, Vinny, you just have such an incredible I and strategic mind for spotting things to leverage that are going to be different and stand out and be discoverable. And that's definitely part of how you've sold internally at MTV so well. And also to the stars that came on to these big shows that were like the first of their kind in the yeah. heyday of MTV. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird when you say sales because in in talent development in in 1999, uh, I was selling to every department internal at MTV the talent that I was finding, the ideas that they were bringing in. But we were also the actual production company. Like in in the late 90s, MTV was the actual production company that produced the shows. So we weren't necessarily farming out all that work to production companies yet, which was a, a framework that came in about like 2004, 2005 mm. when, when reality TV started scaling. So I would, I would spend my day literally selling internally to MTV and then on the phone to every management company, every modeling agency, every A&R account. Cause there, it's weird to say this, like we were calling the, 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 I'll never forget calling Wade Robson and being like, wait, we don't have a dance show. You're a choreographer. Choreographers are like a cool thing on MTV right now. Why don't we have like a Wade Robson dance show and come pitch that to us? Because that's something that I can see is an opportunity for us to create something because, you know, no one internally knows what I know as connected as I was to the pop culture scene in real time in person in New York City. And that was the that was like my unique qualifier was like. I was I wasn't always in MTV. I was in other places representing MTV and I would bring all that back to MTV and sell it sell it to development and to advertising and marketing and and what I learned was how 
how crafting Microsoft Word and Excel and some of those like those like very mundane tools that we use for communication, how important it was to master that page because that page was hitting other people's desks. So the font I used, the size that I used, um, image, images that were cropped correctly so they weren't stretched or you know distorted so that I didn't make you use more of your creativity than you needed to and I can show you what someone actually looks like and they you know in the space as opposed to um as opposed to being successful in spite of technology I leaned into tech and helped technology help me be successful and that's been a big part of of that but it's it's been uniquely for me for sales it's um look there's a I don't know if we're going to talk about this but like from my childhood I became a people pleaser um always in the middle was always caught with the the right group or the bad group. I was always in the middle. So when I grew up, I wanted to be surrounded by talented people who created content. And uh, in the '90s, those were artists and comedians and musicians and and talent that had funds and tools to do that. MTV was the gate to the audience. I, I was positioned as a pat and with a key to the door as a pass through for Diddy, Jessica Simpson, Ashton Kutcher. I can go on Beyonce, Mandy Moore, I can go Jennifer Lopez on and on and on about the artists who came to that platform to reach the audience. And I was aware of that. And uh, I was gifted the opportunity to be in the room. And I really, really leaned on just being silent and being in the room and hearing, hearing the conversations, hearing, hearing artists pass on certain questions, hearing them ask certain questions so they can get give certain answers, you know, the the structure, the construct of of what a personal brand was. I watched it being created with an 18-year-old Beyonce, a 15-year-old Mandy Moore, a 20-something-year-old Diddy. Like we we were making these choices and and I was watching experts in the, from their audiences, people who spent hours in rooms at clubs or in concerts or in, 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 in music spaces where they were sharing, you know, audience and, and space and they were getting real time feedback. So, so honored to be at MTV during that time and to step into the real world franchise and to get to be part of the challenge, which I think just celebrated its 40th season, which is to oh cast, to ca- I, I got to cast TJ Lavin in that show, putting an athlete on that, on that, you know, a show that represents emotional and physical challenge, like our, our, our capabilities and possibilities for generations. That's like, I don't take that. I don't take that lightly now. And I didn't take it lightly back then either. Well, there's so much to what you said that you don't realize was sales. So this is what I noticed, you guys, whenever I was talking to Vinny, I was like, Oh, you have so much natural intuition for this. When you're saying that you're silent in these meetings, um, you're listening so that you can understand what that person's motivation is, what's mm-hmm. important to them, what appeals to them, which directly relates to how you sell a thing to them, a concept. And when you talk about needing to make the the font a certain size and design um, the pitches a certain way, you're talking about a proposal process mm-hmm. um, and even relates to things where there isn't a physical, tangible um, element to it. People need, you need to connect dots for them. You need to make it easy for them to see why this is something that will benefit them because so many people will pitch or sell and not focus on customizing it to the person who's receiving it. 
And I mean, it makes a drastic difference um, in them being receptive to it. Did you ever try to sell something that like maybe didn't, um, you didn't customize it? Like, did you, was that a learning process or did you just always naturally do it? Okay. So that's a brilliant question. And I love, I love uh, this. I hate the barrier of sales that I put around my creativity, probably a, a barrier, a protection, a coping mechanism for hearing no, Pro- probably learn to hate sales because you hear no more in sales than yes. So as a casting director, I don't know why I would have become in casting because no one says no more than a casting director, but I, I learned not to say no. I learned to say not now. And I learned the, the power of, of timing and, and I used those auditions, not just to cast a role, but to, to truly build a relationship with the next wave of talent so that when I have the next show, the next opportunity, I can't quickly connect the dots. Um, you know, you just brought up something that I didn't realize and I, I, I'm, uh, selling the intangible is tough. I'm going through it now with a mastermind or an inner circle. Many people probably can relate to this as they have a digital product. Well, maybe, yeah, even a digital product that, that doesn't, you know, we need artwork that makes it real, something tangible. So, so you're right. Um, I, I I was I worked at the computer center uh, in college for four years, and I bring this up because from ninety five to ninety eight in college, the years that Napster came out, the year that the floppy disk went to the hard disk to the no disk to the removable disk, I learned how to move media. I learned how to scan photos in. I learned how to to put my. I had a back then with iTunes, we had to have a CD to put into a, a, a our computer, and then it would actually take the information and bring it in and rip it and, and get the data included. I learned how to move media in a, in a really crucial time. Uh, uh, when it wasn't and, so easy. <laughs> and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't so easy. I also learned Microsoft Word because working at the computer center, I was helping everybody with their papers, accounting majors, nursing majors, different tones, different tones. You know, I, I didn't see... Um, I just started laughing because uh, I'll never forget. I was <laughs> when someone showed me the power of wingdings as a font in college. <laughs> now you have to remind: I went to school in ninety-five to ninety-eight. So what we would do is we would write the first paragraph of the pap- of the page of our report, and then copy it and paste it in wingdings and make it look like we got a virus, kind of like that. So, that, <laughs> kind of, but I learned. But but I'm I'm. <laughs> it's, a, it's such a scammy thing to bring up, but uh, that's the mechanism of understanding. How a piece of paper, how a font, how how you can archit- how you can create that believable energy that you create this and this moment of opportunity. So those word documents, those reports that I fixed, those time, you know midterms that I fixed for every hundreds of times, those became show bibles and pitch sheets, and every show sort of looked a little different. Um, Okay. I can't think of a single moment, though. A gr- I can't think of a, a single green light moment or a green light meeting at MTV. So when when a so how it works in tele- back then how it worked in television is someone from the network would have met someone from outside of the network. We would bring in a concept, or we would have approached somebody with an idea. We would get talent attached to that concept, and we would bring it in. Initially, there were two or three development teams. Ultimately, by 2007, there were five development teams, news, docs, original, talent development, and specials. And everyone started to have their own sort of specialties. And, and so it was a unique way for MTV to gamify development 
internally yeah. to challenge us to, you know, come up with the best, the best format. Um, in creating those documents, that framework, I needed consensus across marketing, advertising, ad sales, all, all the different department heads need to weigh in on that. So creating a tangible out of something intangible, creating a, a VHS tape, creating a piece of paper that has artwork on it, creating the artwork in and of itself, creating a title, something that people can hold on to. Those are all things that people can share. Yeah, artwork, the same, title, right? No matter what you're selling, it's about making, I mean, a concept is a huge sale. Like there yeah. was a lot of money and a lot of hours that people had to invest when they said yes to a concept. So it's a big ass sale that you were making. Yeah. But concepts aren't necessarily tangible. It's like those smaller yeah. pieces that you have to create those. So for us, maybe podcasters, it's the title of our podcast. It's the artwork. It's the the way we show up in social media. These are the assets that that are shareable. This is what people use to grow. This is the trans, the social transaction we're giving people to build our currency is in these smaller pieces. So I realized that. I realized I don't need to create one deck for a show. I'm going to create one experiential deck and make sure each department understands how the ramifications of the conversations or the characters or the framework of story that we're, we're focused on are going to be impacted because I was aware that reality TV wasn't a destination. And when I cast Housewives of Jersey, and I'm not saying anything wrong about women well, I said women just because I cast Housewives of Jersey and a lot on Bravo, but anybody making a career out of reality TV. It's weird to say this. I didn't see that happening. I, I didn't think Nick Cannon would still be hosting Wild and Out <laughs> 25 years ago when we developed. I'll never forget when he walked in to my office with a VHS tape and put it in and said, look, I know I pitched the show. Oh, this is a great here. You want to know a sales? Here's a great sales story. Nick Cannon pitched Wild and Out. There was no tape. There was nothing tangible to understand. And to be really blunt, unless you were in the culture and in, in the community, you didn't quite understand the power of, of comedy as it relates to talking about things that are important to be talked about. Yeah. And when he pitched while and out, it fell flat in the room and they said it was a polite pass, which meant contractually he can go and take it to other networks if he wanted he over Christmas break was he was dating Christina Milian. I, I'll never forget this. They went and re they they rented out uh, a comedy club for one day. They recorded for a half hour. She was the other judge. So he she was the other celebrity comedian. He was the other celebrity comedian. So for us in the room buying the show, it's kind of you know you got a boyfriend and girlfriend. There's a heightened you know narrative yeah. to this to this story. But um, but you can see in the framework of what he was able to record on his own that he invested on his own dollars and then came back in and said, look, I know I got the pass. I just wanted to show you what this, what two teams with two strong leads, the conversations and the comedy and the energy that we can create. Th this is what didn't come across in the paperwork that I shared. And sure enough, from that video came wild and out. And I think I, dozens of seasons later here we are it's a, a very franchisable show and it's been you know it's created stars that dominate broadway dominate snl dominate mtv that you know have created conversations around tough topics that weren't getting the light of day so that's so great. coming up with the tangible the tangible piece that's hard you know with the with these especially in this 
world of non-tangible value, our assets, our connections, our experiences, let alone our power to educate, right? Those are all things we know are valuable, but how do you materialize that? How do you create something that allows people to share it, you know? Yeah, I mean, that is a really great example of how a tangible can make a difference. And a lot of times in regular sales conversations, the tangibles would be examples. So like, for example, we had a client who had this issue. And when we, you know, changed their messaging to focus on how project management relates to parenting, to getting married, to all of these things, it was more widely accepted. And that's what we would do for you in your accounting business or whatever, you know, when you're able to like give them an example besides just like, I'm sure that when Nick Cannon showed up, it was like, we're going to have a comedy show with two teams. And it's like, I don't get it. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, so you had to see that we it- hadn't done it yet. So it hadn't now there's there an example that's out there. So it's like, well, obviously it would be two teams, their comedy. You could understand. No, that the example wasn't there. And and creativity is getting, you know, something in here, inside, outside. It can be shared with one person or shared with many. But creativity to me is taking something from the inside and then making it tangible making it reality, putting it, taking it from zero to seed to seedling and shareable where, where it, it thrives on your sunshine, our combined, you know, energy and, and shine. Um, well, and also, um, I think you keep saying something that's really important where it's like the comedy made it so that we could talk about difficult topics. So it wasn't just a show for comedy because you have to connect it to the result that the person cares about. So it sounds like the way that Nick positioned it was you guys will be cutting edge and leading the conversations about things that most people won't touch. And people will be talking about you and you'll be getting visibility with that because of the show, not just like it'll get lots of viewers and you'll be able to sell lots of advertising dollars. So he knew that MTV wanted to lead that conversation and make that splash. And that's why he positioned it that way. Is that? Yeah. It's the second time around. Absolutely true. And to be honest, it was because of that construct that focused more on the teams of comedians than the celebrities. Cause the first construct was the, what the value prop was, was these gigantic celebrities that were going to come in. Mm. Uh, well, I remember Will Smith being in the deck and I remember everyone in the room saying, Will Smith would never do at this stage, you know, of television, he would never come and do an episodic. This, this is not something that celebrities were doing yet. Um, mm. There've been a couple of other shows that recently that I've had success having celebrity involvement, but it just, and, and, and it, and it never happened. And Nick, uh, Will was like a, 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 a role model to Nick and it was very instrumental in, in Nick's early development. Um, but the shift changed when he really focused on the level of comedians and the, the connection those comedians had to culture and community. And for that purpose, Nick was very involved and still is very involved in the casting. His whole team, he, he's taught me so much, by the way, Nick. He, he, the same exact team that he sold that show with, Golden Mike Goldman and, and Niall, like the same exact team that he sold that show with are still running that show. It's a testament to having clarity to, in, in purpose and knowing how to, to feed the beast so it can be, it can make the change that you want, right? Because as creatives, we find ourselves wanting to um, elevate conversations. And when you can choose those conversations like Nick gets to on this platform, it could be really meaningful. 
um, again, I'm leaning into the now, the 2023 of of that show in 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 20 or 2003, 2004 when Wild and Out comes out. It's really like as you said, it's about it's about ownership over a conversation that no other platform was having, which meant that we could tap into that audience. And if we could create the framework for a conversation, then an audience would come to us because we saw them, we heard them, we empowered that conversation. What changed in 2007 to 2009 is Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and mm-hmm. people no longer needed network TV networks to jumpstart a conversation for the impact to happen. Although that being said, I look at like what Lifetime did with R. Kelly and clearly TV can still make an impact in real time, in real life, or what Leah Remini has done on A&E. I think of like you know, the real power, yeah, the real power that, that, that television has had in starting conversations now on that level where there's uh, accountability to the conversation. Well, a lot of times people will talk about TV on social. So the sure. the TV will start it, and then the conversation will happen. Um, but you're social, right. Social social is shareable, and that's why TV talks about it. We t- TV shows will always include a digital moment, something specifically meant for social that they will premiere on their television show. Literally, they it's anchor social. So you you see this moment, it anchors in this episode. You go to social media. You now have a shareable moment from the episode you watched. At first, you were excited that you found it, and now you you expect it. You expect to go to Instagram to be able to share the next SNL clip or Jimmy Fallon or whoever it is, Seth, my whoever you watch, you know, to share those clips. You expect those. You expect that fuel. You expect that to be part of the arsenal that you get to show up with and be, be in these conversations so that you are stacked and ready with talk points. And, and now these shows are giving them to us and they're creating shareable forms of media intentionally. So we share them. Well, and honestly, it's another great example of making it easy for someone, connecting the dots for them mm-hmm. so that you get what your ultimate goal is, not in like a bad nefarious way, like you have an agenda, you want people to sell this or you buy this or share this. And so the way that you do it, no matter what you're selling, is you make it easy for the other person to understand and do and make it benefit them. So it benefits someone to share that clip because then they get engagement Mm -hmm. and that's what they want. And so I, I know that like, I I thought the story about Beyonce was like one of like I'm a huge oh, yeah. Beyonce fan. Are you? Yeah. Um, <laughs> huge. So you, I mean, like maybe not so much early Beyonce, but after she did her self-titled album, I mean, I'm just about that woman's message. Like yeah. it is like you do not need to compromise any part of yourself to be a woman who is a badass businesswoman, who's a mother, who's a partner, like who loves fashion and isn't like not as good at business because she's showing up and looking hot in a dress. Like, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. um, so I know she was like never going to do movies, but you sold her on hip hop, that hip opera, right? <laughs> yeah. So this, it was a really cool project, by the way. But before it's funny to say this before reality TV and like the Osborne's was 2000, 2001. Originally, my job in talent development was to figure new, figure out new ways to work with talent. So Beyonce, a brand new artist, um, as I mentioned even Mandy Moore was was a brand new artist, and I, I bring up those two names because we we were able to work with them at a point in time where MTV Films 
was coming up with original programming. Mm-hmm. And those were not films for, for theater necessarily. They were long form films for, for specifically to be broadcast on MTV. Uh, but there was a very traditional sense of casting that I first started off with um, that included casting celebrities in MTV films. Um, some I got to work on some Paramount films. I got to work on Freedom Writers and cast some of the students that were in that. And and I really saw how how Paramount and MTV. I saw this conglomerate of this media conglomerate lean on the MTV talent development department because we really truly had our finger on the pulse of of not just who was new to the space, but we kind of, I, we had so many conversations with platforms and, and label executives and market. I knew, we knew who the priorities were. We knew who our priorities as a platform would be. And we knew who the priority of each respective management company or, or, or label would be. So we had, we had a lot of information that was out there, but Beyonce wasn't looking for a solo moment. In fact, Destiny's Child had just gone through a reshedding, and they had gone from five to three. And there's a couple, you know, so Destiny's Child was at a, a sensitive point where yeah. labels make money on, you know, on, on album sales. Um, so, so not disrupting that group was a really important, you know, part of the success model mm-hmm. that ah, they had. That's a tough sale. Then this is a it's tough, a tough sale. Sell setup right here, yeah. It's a t- it is a tough sell, but you know what? The right. best way the best way in through something like that is through someone who you trust. If I spent only all of our time pitching that project, Carmen the Hip Opera, to the label, and it never made management, and it never made Beyonce, because the label had other vested interests, then like you know the that that project certainly would fail. But but. I think that the reason Beyonce was interested in the opportunity was it was it was a chance to be a solo performer without breaking the group up. It was an excuse to be on screen without five or three other people. And to your point, she was able to show up respectfully without rocking the boat with the the world that she built around her, which also included other strong women. So she wasn't about to throw everyone off the boat just to see how the solo vibes worked. But she created this opportunity, and and it was a brilliant opportunity, by the way, to step into a role that is laced with nostalgia and extremely important uh, story to to be Carmen in in the in what we called a hip hopera, and it was a cool opportunity for me just from a casting perspective. I'll never forget it. In fact, uh, uh, it was three of us in the Beyonce, John Singleton who uh, was the, the director or is the director of Eddie Murphy raw. And like, was the that dude like shaped my comedy in college, my whole comedy chops shaped in, and Beyonce went to read her lines, you know, the way that you would do in an audition. And I, I, for some reason, I, I remember holding the camera and thinking like, this is my shot at being like a film. I can be like a film director or a, a, a videographer as opposed, like I wasn't just happy being a casting person. Anyway, okay. I moved the camera. I moved the camera around a lot and I did some fancy work and, and John took my hand afterwards and he was like, look, I just want you to be six inches from Beyonce's face. I only need to see that her eyes are making contact with one location. I don't need to see that she can act. I see that she can act in the room. I'm here. I just need to make sure that on video it's translating, that the attention is translating. And he said that to me. And I remember feeling like defeated. I remember being like, oh man, like 
doesn't did like I just fancy do, film work. Well, did yeah. I just do something in the middle of Beyonce's audition? Because this is about her. So that I should not be getting notes. She should be getting notes. She is the talent. You are the director. I was like, I felt horrible that the director wasn't was giving me notes when when really yeah. I should I should have been noteless. What I didn't realize in that moment, and this went way over my head, and it isn't until I started telling the story that I realized this was true, that he wasn't telling me that direction. When when you have clarity and creative vision, you don't need to give nitpicking notes, creative, constructive criticism notes. Beyonce, look at the doorknob and turn left and keep your eyes here and take four steps. And then you don't have to give these micro notes if you have clarity. And what he did is share clarity. He told the room, she's she's already rocking the acting thing, so like check that off the list. All I really want to do is make sure her eyes are staying focused. I don't remember in the first take if her eyes were more focused or not, but I do remember in the second take, she barely even blinked. <laughs> he had her walk across the room. I'm six inches from her face walking backwards. And I, I thought that was the skill. And I'd never, I'd never seen someone take a note that wasn't – I didn't feel like it was intended to her, but but it sure was, and she picked up on it. And he didn't have to tell someone what to do and how to do it in, in, in a really minute way. And he let someone be herself and fill the space. And that was a big project because um, Beyonce talks about uh, uh, character development that she learned from being in Carmen and Hip Hopra. And the character she developed was Sasha Fierce, which is like the, the version of Beyonce yeah, that she steps into yeah. when she goes on stage. She, she came up with that ideology and framework while filming Carmen and Hip Hopra. Oh. So I think it's, and, and, and ain't that a lesson in grace? You know what I mean? Like if Beyonce has to come up with an ID that she can step into so she can also step out of it. It's not about removing yourself yeah. from your talent. It's about stepping into your talent. It's about creating framework so that you can nurture your talent so that it does have a beginning and an end. Because if you're talented, you probably love singing all day long. But that's going to hurt the voice, and ultimately, it's going to ruin the you know the the one thing that 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 makes that so special. So, training it and putting ba- bound healthy boundaries and barriers on it, you know that's you need barriers and ba- you need barriers and boundaries on your on your content. That's that's when you know when you're breaking through. <laughs> yeah, if you just are on all the time, like you're going to be exhausted. Yeah. And there was no likes, you know. There was only album sales back then, and maybe radio plays, which. You know, the, we've heard the politics, you know, inherent in that. But but what we can do now as modern creators um, without needing to ask for approval, it, it really connects to like my sales strategy and selling these shows. And I've been part of hundreds of pitches at networks. It's very rarely ever. Do you want to buy the show from us? Will you finance this project with us? Can we produce this with you? Do you want to invest in this? It's very rarely that type of framework. Generally speaking, it's we're going to produce this project. There's we see a, a, a space in the market for this conversation that we're 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 there's momentum uh, in our research and now in terms of content selling, it's it's less about the idea and more about the execution, and that goes back mm-hmm. to taking the intangible and sort of making it needing artwork, needing titles and, and those things that, that make it capable and possible for people to share us. 
again, sharing the universal growth tool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for creatives, it's very clear that for them to sell, it really needs to be about a tangible concept and also what's important to the other person. So when you talk about like this research and stuff, and it all sounds like they're saying, we're going to produce this. Do you want to be part of it? Because if not, we're going to take it to somebody else. That yeah. in itself is a sales tactic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, where you know, you're going to miss out on this opportunity. It's total FOMO. Um, and sometimes it's probably bullshit. Let's be honest. Yeah. And, but by the way, so this is great. And what you're describing is 100% what the industry was, say, up until about 2018, 19. So what would happen is that platforms, because of having FOMO, would buy projects just to take them off the market. Wow. Because what a, at that point in game, there's a lot of overlap in terms of who the audience is. Nowadays, in 2023, if you said, well, we're going to take it to a different network, the network might even turn back to you and say, well, if it can go on another network, it should. If it's not right for us and it's not perfect for us and we're not the only place it can go, then it's not right for us. And it's not it's not specific enough and it's not valuable enough for our audience. Television has turned into retention more so than growth. Television is about how do we retain the eyeballs that are already watching our, our content before they cut the cord, before they go to an, another one of the 100,000 channels that exist now. Uh, it's got to be spot on and there's less risks that are happening, but it doesn't mean there's less sales. A lots, lots of things are being bought that aren't being produced. Um, That's so uh, interesting. Which is, un which is unfortunate. Yeah, it's unfortunate, by the way, um, which is why I think there's a lot of creators that got their start in the public sector of media like me who love and are thriving in this private sector, personal sector of content where I can own my content. I, I don't like saying own the audience just because I have an email address doesn't mean I just because I have an email address and I pay <laughs> $200 to hit 15,000 people from MailChimp or go high level, whatever, just because I'm paying to doesn't mean I own anything. So like, I, I'm not a fan of, you know, some people Say so they own their email list. Yeah, they own their email list or they don't want to do LinkedIn newsletters because, you know, uh, they want to own their audience. Let me tell you something, <laughs> my, my dear friends, <laughs> Aud audience owns you. And also, <laughs> I believe that LinkedIn, especially LinkedIn, especially because LinkedIn is built with a little bit of Microsoft and, and Elon Musk is talking about this with Twitter, that should someone opt in to wanting their information to be seen, that, that Twitter plans on allowing users to get their email addresses of their followers and, subscri and subscribers, I should say, if we opt in to having that information made available. So I think in the future, what's going to happen with the centralized social media platforms like LinkedIn, Facebook, you know, the ones that are, are owned by a certain company, um, the leverage that we have now in data and creating and creating data and utilizing data, uh, we have rights to that. And that's fundamentally a big conversation in social media right now, as big in, in podcasting. So again, if you own it, you'll be able to do a lot more with it. And that's why but you have to I love podcasting. You have to earn it and earn the retention, which is what you're saying. You have to care yeah. about the people and not just think I own you. You don't. They can unsubscribe. Yeah, and I, I, by the way, I've had I, my, I had sales jobs. I, I was a telemarketer at, at the Staten Island Advance. I used to sell new memberships. I was really good at that. I was a telemarketer for Sears, selling maintenance agreements. I loved uh, actually, that was a tough job because I got new sales, and I would always call up and say, "Hey, would you like, would you like a new, you know, a, a, a maintenance agreement on your brand new washer and dryer?" 
And then she would say, but I don't have a new washer and dryer. And then I would hear the husband in the background be like, you ruined the Mother's Day present. I can't believe it. <laughs> so then I got real sensitive. I was like, y'all, at Sears, you're making me make these phone calls. It's... <laughs> <laughs> but then I learned how to I learned how to say what I got to say and not say what I don't want to say. And uh, that's where I was like more of a people pleaser. I'd rather not ruin the surprise than try to get a sale. So I had to learn how to, hey, this is Sears. Just call and see how everything's going. And <laughs> just a friendly call from Sears you yeah. know, if I didn't feel like they knew what I was talking about. But that's because I want to use I want to use their language, their energy and the sale. Um well, um, and that's what you did with all the shows internally. Like when you're pitching yeah. it to advertising, you're talking about what advertising wants to know when you're pitching it to, um, the talent, you're talking about how it benefits the talent and you're so good at naturally thinking of what benefits other people probably because you're a people pleaser. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Coping mechanism turns superpower. Thanks mom and dad. <laughs> Thanks for the super skill. <laughs> so. I know everybody kind of shames themselves about being a people pleaser, but it is what it is. It's what made me me. There are definitely strengths to it. And Vinny has recently coached me on having very clear boundaries and saying no. So you can be a people pleaser, um, lose the strengths of that and still have boundaries. So it's important to to, to respect that no boundary so that you, you have more space to complete the, 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 commitment that for to the people that you said yes to to be really honest and I that's the that's the way I approach it um and again I believe in time I believe so deeply in time not now is just as good an answer as no to be honest and you'll hear me say not now more often than no because I know in my career if I said no and I didn't say not now I'd be wrong a whole lot (laughs) Because I met really talented people where no was the answer to that project, but not now ended up being the answer because a week later, the right project came in. Or or I was able to take a project and, and cultivate it and turn it into an opportunity that, that I knew the right, the perfect person would be there for. They just, some, of those, some of those pieces weren't there that I knew they can bring you know, uniquely. Um, All right. Well, that's a good stopping point for us. And we've reached the end of yet another episode of Sales is Not a Dirty Word. Thanks again, Vinny, for coming and appearing as our guest today and telling us stories that I always think sound fake, but I know that they're real. It's just crazy. (laughs) You're the best, by the way. And look, I I know it's funny you say that. I got it, but that's why I got into reality TV because who who could write this stuff, right? Like (laughs) who could write the Osbournes and Chicken Tuna of the Sea? You can't write that. (laughs) But what I will tell you is that when I turned to you and I needed someone to write some of my reality, I needed someone to tell me the words to say, to close a sales loop or to connect an idea to a sales. Sometimes that, that phrasing, that wording matters. And um, Bethany of all the women to talk about Bethany from housewives of New York wrote an amazing book revealing her experience on housewives, how she would spend the entire night prior to having a conversation with one of the housewives. She would spend the entire night finding ways to make it sound great, to make it sound like a sound bite, to make it punchy. She would make sure that, the right drink was in her hands when she was having said conversation because heightened moments in TV tend to stay in TV. So the birth of the skinny girl Margarita, you actually see it. She gets that strategic and layered in, but, but what she really was talking about was intentionality and, and what you helped me with in my sales scripting is the intentionality behind what I want to do. And I forever am grateful to you for, 
to you for that. So thank you. As you can see, I need words. I need the words in my mouth. <laughs> passion, man. Passion takes over. Oof, we got to watch out for that one. <laughs> yeah. It's just about you have so many wonderful things to say. And so we can't say them all. Mm. And I know a lot of people relate to that. You just get so excited when you're talking to somebody and it, it starts flowing. Um, but it doesn't seem as tangible. So I am honored that you've let me work with you so that you can build a life working with people that you really love working with, because that's, I mean, why do life any other way? You don't have yeah. to. Yeah. And, and all those people that I got to work with that we mentioned earlier are very actively still in my life. Um, so I completely agree. And I lo I'm looking forward to the long haul with you. <laughs> Me too, Vinny. I can't wait. Um, can you tell everyone how they can find out more about you and how they could possibly work with you? Yeah, I appreciate that. Well, they're they're they're, they're a okay and doing a good job at listening to podcasts. So when you hit pause or end this podcast, whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on, one thing is make this be the episode that you finally leave Alicia a five star review. So like. After you're done leaving the five-star review, then I'm going to ask you to take a snapshot of that because I want proof. Go ahead and tag me in it. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram at Vinny Potestivo. You'll find me. If you don't know how to spell my name, go to Alicia's social media. Look through the friends, sort by alphabet, and you'll find Vinny Potestivo a long way there. And then, and if you're on Apple Podcasts and you're listening to this podcast right now, um, after this episode, hop over to I Have a Podcast, which is the name of my podcast. What that does is send a signal to Apple that people who listen to Alicia's podcast also listen to mine. And what that could do is get Alicia's podcast some visibility on my Apple podcast page. So people who come and find my podcast could also find Alicia's. I'm all about getting more visibility, making people more shareable. And uh, if you have any other questions, I literally, I, I hate saying this, but I hang out on LinkedIn all day. <laughs> I have like an open inbox policy. And like, I really, I like what happens on LinkedIn. If Instagram is speed dating, LinkedIn is like falling in love with like your high school boyfriend all over again. It's like someone you know who's consistent, you know the family, you know what they did, you know, you know their actions and you know where to find them. And for that purpose, um, I love LinkedIn and the, the stability that it brings to the social game. So hang out with me on LinkedIn or find me at I Have a Podcast. And I appreciate that, Alicia. Thank you so much, Vinny. And thank you everyone so much for listening. We will see you next time. See you then.